sacred swamps and streams. This is a song about the Ring of Fire. I wrote that a long time ago, maybe 2011, 2012, when the first time, you know, the talk about the Ring of Fire was coming to be. And so I started putting something together. It's written and performed by a Juno Award-winning artist. Okay, my name is Lawrence Martin. I work for Moshego Council. At the moment, I'm the Interim uh, Director of Lands and Resources. Over the years, Martin has been elected to public office several times. He served as the mayor of two northern Ontario towns, Sioux Lookout and Cochrane. He's also been elected to be Grand Chief of the Muskegawak Council, a council which represents eight member Cree First Nations in northern Ontario. Now, he works with the council to conserve the nation's homelands. Lots of fire in your heart. The council has called for a pause in Ring of Fire development until they can study the mining project's effect on the Hudson and James Bay lowlands, home to one of the planet's most effective land-based carbon sinks, the peatlands. The peatlands store tons of carbon dioxide equivalent worth of planet-warming gases, and experts say developments could disrupt the peatlands, releasing that gas into the atmosphere and adding to the climate crisis. This podcast is called The Road. It's a co-production with Canada's National Observer. Funding for this podcast comes from the Gordon Sinclair Foundation. I'm Isaac Panay, and you're listening to Episode 3, The Breathing Lands. When you look at a map of Canada, Hudson Bay scoops into northern Ontario and Quebec, where the Atlantic and Arctic Oceans meet. James Bay sits just south of Hudson Bay. The lands that wrap around the bays are often called the Hudson and James Bay Lowlands. They're home to the world's second largest peatlands, which are made up of peat, also called muskeg. That's why you'll hear the term peat and muskeg used interchangeably. When you fly over the landscape, it's just astonishing to you can fly over it for an hour and all you see is is just peatland and all of these amazing patterns across the peatlands that have just developed over thousands of years um, it's really extraordinary that's biochemist lorna harris i'm lorna harris i'm a director of the forest peatlands and climate change program with wildlife conservation society canada Harris studied peatland conservation in Scotland, where most of the peatlands have been altered by agriculture. She came to Canada to study peatlands that surround the Hudson and James Bays. The Hudson Bay Lowland is the second largest peatland complex in the world. It's an area that is bigger than Germany. And the mining region in northern Ontario that's been called the Ring of Fire sits right inside that peatland complex. Harris has dedicated her career to studying the peatlands, these wetlands made of peat soil. Peat is essentially dead plants that have built up slowly, very slowly, over many thousands of years. One of the plants that make up peatlands is called sphagnum moss. So the sphagnum mosses, which 
grow across many of these different peatlands, very tiny mosses that create like a carpet across the landscape, a very soft, colorful carpet, often lots of sort of rusty oranges and sort of wine red colors, so really bright greens as well. And sphagnum mosses hold onto water really well. They're also mostly 90% water as well. These are very, very wet soils. Some can be quite stable to walk on and others are just very, very sloppy and you go waist deep. <laughs> what does it look like? Peat soil is essentially, it's very dark, sort of a rich dark brown. Kind of makes you think of chocolate cake. <laughs> These dark brown soils, multicolored mosses and bodies of water all come together to make up the Hudson and James Bay lowlands. It is a mosaic of different peatland types, permafrost peatlands in the north, bogs and fens and swamps, all of them connected with all of these rivers and streams running, running through them and from them, and just this really highly connected, amazing landscape. This landscape of Muskeg is home to several First Nations, the Meshkigawak First Nations. Here's Lawrence Martin. Well, it's, it's our home, first of all. And, you know, and I think where you live, where you choose to live, where you were born and how you got to learn what that land has to offer, what it gives you for your sustenance, it becomes totally important. You would totally rely on it. And so for our people, we uh, have been doing that since time immemorial. Martin says the peatlands play an important part in Cree oral histories. So Nenewen is, is the Cree word for, for breathing lands. And it's just how, how it's described in the legends. And part of Martin's job now is to travel to the Meshkigawak nations to speak with elders about the breathing lands. To the elders, how they describe the breathing lands, the peatlands, is that it, it cleanses. It's, it's like the lungs of the earth. And scientists say that the elders Martin spoke to are correct because the peatlands help regulate planet warming gases associated with climate change. How does this work? The peat is made of waterlogged old dead plants. So all of the peat in that peat soil, most of that would have been, you know, a plant that was growing maybe 7,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago in that landscape. And it was taking carbon from, from the atmosphere and it was putting that carbon into its leaves and its roots and its, its uh, branches. And in those waterlogged conditions, when that plant dies, all of those pieces of the plant can't decompose very quickly. So slowly over time, through that cycle, all of that, th that dead plant matter just builds up and builds up. And all that carbon builds up and up too, locked into these peatlands, these breathing lands. The peatlands are massive carbon stores because of this. They're storing thousands and thousands of years worth of carbon. Uh, the Hudson Bay lowland in particular, because of its size and extent, and because it hasn't been disturbed, holds around 35 billion tons of carbon, maybe up to 39 billion tons of carbon. Which translates to up to about 143 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. Which is enormous. It's one of the world's largest terrestrial carbon stores. It's more than 20 times the total carbon dioxide emissions that Canada reported between 2011 and 2021. And it is absolutely critical that that carbon stays in the ground and doesn't return to the atmosphere because all of that carbon that was taken thousands of years ago has had a cooling effect on our climate. And it's really important that we don't then release that to the atmosphere. 
because when these peatlands are disturbed, they release carbon dioxide and methane gas into the atmosphere, warming the planet. And while the undisturbed peatlands do naturally release gases, the key thing is that over time in undisturbed peatlands, the, there's always more carbon going into the peatland than is coming out as those gases. But over time, Martin says, members of Meshkigawak First Nations have noticed the muskeg changing. The rivers are going dry because the permafrost is melting. There's nothing to keep that water on, on the, near the surface. So the water just sinks, the rivers are drying up. But within that permafrost, there's a lot of methane gas and different gases. And when you wander around through this area, you can smell those things. You can smell the gas even in the wintertime. You can even go light a fire on the ice and it will explode where methane gas is. So we're, we're coming to a time it seems, as the elders describe, where the world is changing a lot. So when they heard about a plan to develop the Ring of Fire, he said people from Meshkigawak nations were concerned. The project would sit on the breathing lands, and a road to the Ring of Fire would cross the Albany and Attawapiskat rivers, which flow north and east from the Ring of Fire, into the James and Hudson Bays. So does all the water that flows through the peat. Uh, being downstream, we're afraid of what impact that the Ring of Fire would have on the river, on the peatlands, the animals, the birds, and everything. Our Meshkego Council is not opposed to de uh, resource development, but what we want is re responsible resource development and for us to be included at these tables. It's a very simple ask. Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. Sometime in the early 2010s, Martin said he went to the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada's annual convention. That's the so-called Super Bowl of Mining. He calls it PDAC. And I went down to Toronto to PDAC. And while at PDAC, I ran into some of these uh, old friends of mine. And one of them, he says, hey, Lawrence, I was thinking about you. He says, you need to write a song about the Ring of Fire. And I said, I already did. And one of the first line talks about the Ring of Fire, what's happening there, and how the the roads and everything will be going across swamplands and, and muskeg, and these are sacred places. And that at some point, those machines are going to dig up the ashes of my grandfather and turn them into steel.
In 2012, Harris moved to Canada to study northern peatlands. That's when she heard about the Ring of Fire mining project. So when the Ring of Fire came to my attention and I realized it was all going to be on peatlands, I immediately thought, well, how much carbon is stored here? What's at risk? So Harris said she looked at the area of all the mining claims that were on the peatlands and used the best available data from peat samples in the area to come up with an estimate of how much carbon was stored in the Ring of Fire. The peatlands covered by mining claims store around 450 million tons of carbon. This doesn't include the roads. This is just the, just the mining claims themselves within that Ring of Fire region. 450 million tons of carbon is equivalent to 1.6 billion tons of carbon dioxide, which is an absolutely enormous amount of carbon dioxide. In terms of greenhouse gas emissions for Canada, that is more than double our annual emissions for like one year's annual emissions. For one development, one region, the risk of, of carbon release from developing in this region is really, really high. Since Harris made that estimate, companies have continued to stake claims in the Ring of Fire. Now, at the start of 2024, more than 6,200 square kilometers of land is staked for mining. If that's all peatlands, Harris says the Ring of Fire now contains just over 2 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. So you have an industry that's that's based in the area, industry with a very small footprint and working in an environmentally friendly manner. Kristen Straub says the Eagle's Nest mine won't touch the peatlands. He's the CEO of mining company Wiley Ring of Fire. Straub says the company plans to develop the mine on a sandy ridge called an esker. So it is an exposed high level of ground. It's not a peat per se area. It is a high drained area that's composed of, uh, of sandy material. And Straub says to stop the mine from contaminating the groundwater. You recycle water and you continually repurpose the same water through your, uh, through your process plant to ensure that you're not having large volumes of discharged water. Now that works on a basic principle of capture all the water from the industrial site and reutilize as much as possible within the existing site and ensure that any of the other water, either if it's uh, meteorological water or surface water, doesn't come in contact with the operational perspective. And that's created through a series of ditches uh, and diversions that then ensure that water from the process site does not mix with any water from the exterior site. Which peatlands researcher Harris has seen work before. When I've seen it on other sites, you know, it's through mineral soils. It's, it's easier for them to do it, to protect rivers, to protect downstream environments. Whereas here, they're gonna be basically in the wetland and damaging the wetland in an effort to prevent further damage downstream, which could work, but it is going to be very challenging. But that's just the first mine that will be built. They're not going to stop at one mine. If they get all the roads to build these, you know, to get up to this region, the cost and time needed to build those roads, it's not just going to be Eagle's Nest, it's going to be a whole load of other mines. And they can't put all of them on eskers in that region or on the Boreal Shield. They, most of the mining claims are within the peatlands. The road itself presents more risk. There is a lot at stake if we're going to be building roads of this length and scale through the, the Hudson Bay lowland to the Ring of Fire. The location of the roads is upstream of most of the peatland complex itself. 
So there is a huge risk that it is going to cut off and change water flows to a very large area of peatland and other ecosystems, the rivers and streams themselves. Kasim Sadiq is a consultant that Martin Falls First Nation has hired to help move road plans through provincial and federal environmental assessments. He says right now there are a couple different possible routes for the road. For the first part... Different amount of the alternative crosses, peatland or, or boggy areas, but it's a, it's a relatively small percentage of the project. And as we are considering which alternative to choose, one of the drivers absolutely is to try and minimize the use of that area. And for the second section of the road, called the Northern Road Link... We veer off of the Esker system. So you can maximize the use of that area on the northern road link because it goes north and south. So on that, uh, the, the use of peats actually fairly minimized simply for that feature. Where we go off of the Esker, that's driven by primarily indigenous knowledge. And where peat can't be avoided, Sadiq says it's possible to put a large piece of fabric over the peat, kind of like a carpet, and put the gravel road on top. And they enable you to construct sort of a, a floating road. It's a bridge, basically, without piers and support columns. And what that does is it enables the flow of water under the, under the road itself. So the peat stays intact. You don't kill it. You don't excavate it. You, you leave it the way it is. But that's not quite what happens, according to Harris. She says the roads will still damage the peatlands. It was a lot of misunderstandings around floating roads. Um, the term itself suggests that it is the solution to this, this issue of you know not damaging the peat. It's not the solution. It, it can help. It can reduce the amount of peat that is excavated, for sure. Floating roads do damage the peatlands. Um, they just, you don't excavate all of the peat necessarily, but you're still putting something across the peatland surface. You're losing the peatland itself. Um, it's essentially being converted to a road. And at either side of it, you're going to have to be very careful with maintaining the water flows. Because if water doesn't flow the same way through the muskeg... That upstream can basically flood and increase methane emissions. And the downstream area of peat can dry out and increase carbon dioxide emissions. Both areas can become a carbon source to the atmosphere rather than a carbon sink. That's assuming it's well kept and stays afloat. Floating roads, I've seen a lot of them sink because peatlands are 90% water. The road could still cut off water flow through the muskeg and cause it to release carbon. We may not fully understand because we haven't built a road of this kind of scale through a landscape like this before. So there are potentially many unforeseen impacts, but there are also many that we do know. We do know that there is a risk to water chemistry of the rivers and streams, and then the fish that are in those streams and rivers. We know that the peatlands, if the water levels change, we could change the carbon cycling within the peatlands and turn them into a carbon source to the atmosphere instead of a sink, which they currently are, and are predicted to remain so if we leave them undisturbed. Back in northern Ontario, Martin said the elders are concerned the water will become contaminated. If those vehicles, those trucks are loaded up with this chromite, then they're going to be taken down the long road to Highway 11, 500 kilometers or how many hundreds of kilometers down. So all along that road, there's a potential of something could happen to those trucks. They could tip over, get into an accident and spill all that, that chromite and all the different minerals and chemicals that, that, that could come from that. What if a truck falls into the river from the bridge? 
that's a that's a rare instance for, for it to happen anywhere in Canada. Uh, we expect it to be a rare instance here as well. And you'd mitigate for it with, you know, reasonable design features, railings, safeguards. Still, the Meshkigawak Council wants to lead discussions about the Ring of Fire. We want to do a, a major mitigation conference, you know, with Webekwe and Martin Falls and with Ontario and Wailu and say, listen, hear us out. Hear what we are concerned about. We'll work together to make sure that, you know, if it, the whole thing is going to go ahead of how to mitigate any possibilities of, of damage to anything, to everything. And the council is racing to protect the breathing lands. Last year, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced funding for a Mushkigawuk council-led conservation project. Martin says the council wants to designate 75,000 square kilometers of forested area, 90,000 square kilometers of water in the Hudson Bay, and 130,000 square kilometers of peatlands as a conservation area, and pay people to protect the land. We are identifying over 200 jobs that can be created from conservation, developing a conservation economy. 200 jobs, guardians, people that would be monitoring, people that would be enforcing, making sure that the land is protected. And that there's, if there's people that want fisheries, we provide food security for the communities. Protect the waters of the mighty rivers. Seven generations for the children of this land. And the council's in talks with Ontario to make it happen. In October, Ontario Indigenous Affairs Minister Greg Rickford set up a meeting with Meshkigawak council leadership. It's the first step towards forming a treaty table. That's a formal body that brings Ontario and the council together to make decisions about what happens on Meshkigawak First Nations land. Martin says establishing the conservation area is on the agenda. On the Next time on the road. You're not crossing the river system. You're, You're not going to cross the river system. You're not crossing our How some First Nations plan to fight the Ring of Fire. Mr. Speaker, it's not the law of Ontario. However, we have built consensus into the forwarder. This podcast is reported, written, and produced by me, Isaac Panay. It's a co-production with Canada's National Observer. Funding for this podcast comes from the Gordon Sinclair Foundation. Story editing by Sandra Bartlett and Zara Kozema, with sound effects from Pixabay. If you think other people should find us, leave a comment and a five-star rating. It would really help us out. And our theme song is Gravel and Grit by Northern Points. <laughs>